we can learn valuable lessons from misdirected ability and ambition. Method acting is when actors emotionally connect with their characters so extremely they essentially lose themselves to become their character, sometimes remaining in character after filming stops. Heath Ledger used method acting to become, as Ledger put it, a psychopathic, mass-murdering, schizophrenic clown with zero empathy. He went to extremes to become the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight, and Ledger won a posthumous Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Yet his method acting likely contributed to his fatal overdose on prescription drugs. To become the Joker, uh, Ledger went to extremes. He isolated himself in a hotel room for weeks. He got little sleep, drew inspiration from studying a novel about a sociopath who hurts people for the fun of it. He mused on comic books to get into character. Ledger said, quote, it's a combination of reading all the comic books I could that were relevant to the script and then just closing my eyes and meditating on it. End quote. Ledger urged Christian Bale, who played Batman, to physically assault him during filming for authenticity. Bale said his commitment was total. Heath Ledger absolutely loved being the Joker. I think method acting is dangerous, if not immoral. Heath Ledger misdirected his ability and ambition to become the Joker. Even so, there's something to learn from it. He threw himself into the character and sacrificed physically, emotionally, and socially. He willingly lost himself in his role, which on one level is commendable because if that same level of dedication is directed toward honoring and imitating Christ, the suffering servant, it would be acclaimed as exemplary godliness. Imitating Jesus Christ requires extremes Far beyond method acting, it requires complete and spirit-wrought self-denial, sacrifice, submission, suffering, and even death. Let me ask a question of myself and of you. Do we really know what Christ requires of us as disciples? I don't know that we fully understand what being a Christian entails. We want it to be easy. It's not easy. Christ demands self-denial, sacrifice, submission, and suffering. Now, you have to understand, there's a, there's a more comfortable and easy way to live, but it doesn't lead to eternal life. Only the hard road beyond the narrow gate leads to life, and Christ has walked it for us. He already blazed the trail. We must follow Christ on the hard road, and walking with him is the only way to survive first the suffering of Christ. Peter had just confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ had just promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even so, the disciples didn't fully understand. They had many misconceptions about Christ and his kingdom and Jesus would just continue to teach them. Before Peter's confession, Jesus Jesus' teaching about his suffering, death, and resurrection was veiled. But after Peter's confession, Jesus pulled back the veil more and more. Mark 8.32 says, and he said this plainly. Look at verse 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Suffering was the foreordained burden Jesus needed to bear as the Christ. The Father ordained and anointed Jesus to suffer for the redemption of his people. Isaiah had prophesied that the Christ would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would be smitten and afflicted by God, chastised, wounded, oppressed, and put to grief. It was God's eternal plan. As verse 21 says, he showed them that he must go. He must go. There there was no other way. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to fulfill his God-given office as prophet, priest, and king. And I really like how Dr. Hendrickson framed Jesus' ministry to his disciples. He wrote this, we see the anointed one as our chief prophet in plain, unfigurative language foretelling his own demise, as our merciful high priest preparing to lay down his life that he might take away the sin of the world. And throughout it all, as our eternal king, being in complete control of every situation so that the plan of God triune made before the foundation of the world was being carried out in every detail, end quote. The Christ willingly submitted himself to pain and suffering. To truly follow Jesus, you must follow Jesus into suffering for Jesus, Peter later wrote these words, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters, to truly follow Jesus is to follow in his steps of suffering and endurance for good. Second, the death of Christ. When I was applying for jobs in college, being a pastor was not my plan. When I was uh, dating a girl for about three years, marrying Christina was not my plan. When we bought a home in Pittsburgh, moving back to Lancaster to, to pastor a church was not my plan. But our plans are often different from God's sovereign plan. A dead Messiah was not their plan, but but it was God's eternal redemptive plan. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. The death of Christ was God's eternal redemptive plan. Jesus didn't say crucified at this point, though he alluded to it by mentioning taking up the cross, but he made his death clear. Jesus submitted himself to death to be the Christ for us. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do do you really want to be like Jesus? Then you must follow him to death. You must die. 1 Peter 2, 24 describes this death. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Okay, he died on the cross. Why? Peter continued, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You must die to sin. 
die to sin. And then when you die to sin, you are free from the tyranny of sin. Listen, everyone who truly belongs to Christ has already died with Christ. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul encouraged the Colossian church, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you think of yourself as having died with Christ? You're dead. Died with Christ. In Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul put it this way, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every true disciple has died with Christ, and we could say is continually dying to sin. You can be assured, brothers and sisters, you can draw comfort from, okay, be assured that you are following Jesus. Like, I know I'm following Christ when sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry are continually being killed in you. As Colossians 3, 5 says, brothers and sisters, you are dead to sin and still dying to sin. Christ died so that you would die with him, but you die with him also in order to live with him. Third, the resurrection of Christ. You see, following Jesus is about dying and coming to life. Meditate on Heidelberg 88 through 90. Do so this week. It will greatly encourage you. Verse 21 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's the sign of Jonah again. But Jesus now taught his disciples plainly and on the third day be raised. Jesus wasn't being cryptic. He was being clear. But I think the be killed part greatly overshadowed the on the third day be raised part. Suffering and death were inconceivable for the disciples. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus was destined for a cross because he is the Christ the son of the living God, and destined then to be vindicated by the father in his resurrection. The world cried, guilty, crucify him. But in the resurrection, God thundered, my son is righteous. His resurrection assures us that we share in his righteousness and life. Now, do you know the gospel of your resurrection with Christ? Do you know that good news? Brothers and sisters, you have already been brought from death to life. Ephesians 2, 6 says that we've been raised up with Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We absolutely will be raised on the last day. That is true. 
but there's a real sense in which we've already been raised with Christ. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You were crucified with Christ and raised with Christ to walk in newness of life with Christ. Your new life has begun and you are following him. Praise the Lord. Peter's problem was that he set his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verses 22 and 23 show us that setting our mind on earthly things is satanic. It's satanic. Saints, we have been raised with Christ in order to set our minds on the things of God Being raised with Christ has given us a new orientation in this life. So consider yourselves then dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and then set your mind on the things of God. Imitate Jesus because you are alive in him and your mind is on him. And we're just scratching the surface here. Fourth, the steadfastness of Christ. It's absolutely pathetic how easy it is for us to be distracted from God's will, to just not even give a rip and to pay attention. Jesus wasn't distracted. He's the embodiment of steadfastness. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. At the core Of everything evil and vile is the thought that we know better than God. Jesus never entertained that thought. Peter couldn't grasp the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. Peter couldn't grasp the kingdom coming through suffering, death, and resurrection. He couldn't uh, hear this redemption in the words of Christ He didn't yet understand. In time, these beautiful redemptive truths would be concreted, cemented into his heart and mind and life. But at this point, Peter, dear Peter, let his emotion overtake him. Have you ever been there? Your emotion just takes over? That's my life story. My goodness. His emotion takes over, and right after confessing the Christ... He rebukes the Christ. Notice that Peter was denying the very cause of his redemption. Think about that. He denied the necessity of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Christ. He denied the basis of God's redemptive plan. He denied the basis of his own salvation. Isn't it true that though we confess Christ, we often find ourselves refusing the word of Christ? Sometimes we want something else to be true. It is never prudent, brothers and sisters, to doubt or question the word of Christ because salvation comes through it. And we may excuse Peter here because we assume that, hey, his intentions were good. 
His intentions were good, so we excuse what he says. But the force of Jesus' response in verse 23 does not allow us to think well of Peter's good intentions. Calvin said, quote, Though the lusts of the flesh, as they resemble wild beasts, are difficult to be restrained, yet there is no beast more furious than the wisdom of the flesh. It is on this account that Christ reproves it so sharply and bruises it, as it were, with an iron hammer to teach us that it is only from the word of God that we ought to be wise, end of quote. Peter spoke from his flesh, from human wisdom, and Christ crushed his good intentions because they were contrary to God's redemptive plan and purpose. Human wisdom leads to death. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Christ roared against Peter's good intentions because they were satanic. Jesus would not hear his satanic good intentions. Christ's response to Peter shows us that good intentions can be the vilest of things when they diverge from God's revealed will. Christ was Steadfast, and as Satan himself had done, Peter was tempting Christ away from what he had been sent to accomplish. Peter was acting like Satan, speaking evil things. Matthew used the word scandalon, scandalous, scandalon, which is a stumbling block that causes someone to sin. Peter went from a rock confessing the Christ to a stumbling block tempting the Christ. And Jesus wanted absolutely no part of it. Peter's mind was set on the things of the flesh which leads to death, but Christ's mind was set on the things of the Spirit which leads to life and peace. Steadfast on the road to the cross and empty tomb. Steadfast. And brothers and sisters, your steadfastness is found in his steadfastness. We need him. We must not live by good intentions. We must live by the word, power, and spirit of Christ. We are, we are often a stumbling block for ourselves. We are often a stumbling block for others because we question the word of Christ and then we operate on our own wisdom. To follow Christ, we must heed the word of Christ, submit ourselves entirely to it and depend on Christ depend on Christ to sustain us in steadfastness. Fifth, the repayment of Christ. Jump down to verse 27. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And folks, verse 27 is one of those verses that when you hear it, it sounds wrong. You're like, I don't think that's right. It sounds like heaven is the payment for everyone who does good enough, enough good to earn it. Go get them. Go earn heaven. That's what Jesus taught. Hallelujah. That's, that's, that's tempting, but completely wrong. And I don't have time to unpack this, but it's important this little rule will help you to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. That's clear. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith 
in Jesus Christ. So verse 27 can't be salvation by works. Can't be. Repay is reward. But it is a reward of grace, not merit. See, the good works done are done by God's grace and spirit, so the reward is grace as well. To say the reward is earned is to destroy the gospel of justification by grace alone. Good works, brothers and sisters, are the fruit of true faith which the Holy Spirit works in our hearts by the gospel. Heidelberg 63 and 64 are exactly right. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. And it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of righteousness. A healthy tree bears good fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. Good soil produces grain. Apart from Christ our vine, we can do absolutely nothing. The reward is entirely grace. It's grace. One source contends, quote, God in his grace will recognize and reward his own work of grace in believers as evidenced in the works it produces. And that's right. And that's right. So be clear about two things. One, Romans 14, as Romans 14, 12 teaches, you will give an account of yourself to God. Every single one of us will give an account to God for how we have lived. Christ will repay you according to how you've lived. And two, as the grace and spirit of God compel you to follow Jesus in his self-denial, sacrifice, submission, and suffering, you will be greatly rewarded. You will be rewarded with fantastic grace. Living for Jesus will be well worth your pain. It will be worth it. So we need to keep these these things in mind. Living for Jesus will be worth the pain. It was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. There is unfathomable joy awaiting you. Do not give give up and just indulge your flesh. It's not worth it. Believe the promises of Christ and live for him so that you may receive his gracious reward at his return. You won't ever regret it. You will not. The reward is great. Now, verse 27 is talking about the second coming of Christ and his judgment. So look at verse 27. Second coming, his judgment. And Christ addressed this back in chapters 3 and 13, particularly in the parable of the sower. This is not the first time that we're encountering this. However, verse 28 talks about, very interestingly, the disciples seeing the coming of the kingdom during their lifetime. That's interesting. Hang with me here. This will be helpful. I think it's relatively easy to understand. On the one hand, the disciples saw the On the other hand, the disciples did not see the coming of the kingdom. We need to think of the, the kingdom in terms of already, but not yet, as inaugurated, but not consummated. Verse 27 is the consummation of the kingdom. Verse 28 is... Excuse me, verse 28 is the inauguration of the kingdom. 
The kingdom will come in full at the return of Christ. But in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus told the Pharisees that the kingdom had come upon them, had come upon them. The kingdom was a present reality. In Luke 17, when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom was a present reality. So sixth, the kingdom of Christ. And we'll be studying the kingdom of Christ more in the coming months, but in verse 28, Jesus says something fascinating. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What? What's he saying? Some of the disciples... Standing with him in that moment would not die until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what did Jesus mean? Not an easy question to answer. I don't think Jesus was talking about his second coming because the disciples would all die before his second coming. Here's what I think Jesus meant. It seems as if Jesus was referring to the events of his death, resurrection, ascension, and even the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, and even the explosive growth of the church in the world through gospel preaching. Christ conquers all his enemies through his cross, through his resurrection, through his glorification as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns and rules over all things. That is his glory. And his victory. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about the great power and might of God, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The disciples, apart from Judas, saw his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and even the growth of the church which Christ promised. They saw the reign and rule of Christ spreading throughout the world. One study note proposed, the coming of the Son of Man, more likely here, relates to the entire process by which Jesus receives dominion, especially his resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. All these things happened during the lifetime of the disciples, end quote. After seeing Christ do miraculous works and teach unrivaled wisdom. The disciples saw Christ conquer sin, Satan, and death and win the victory of redemption through the cross, through the resurrection. They witnessed his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father. They even witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They even witnessed the explosive growth of the church through gospel preaching and church planting. And they came to believe this is working. This is it. The king has come. Now Judas, Judas, who was with them in verse 28, didn't see it. 
Though he heard the gospel from Christ, Judas never saw the crucified and risen Lord. He killed himself before he could see the victory and coming kingdom of the crucified and risen Christ. The others, they saw the triumphant Christ. They, they, they came to understand what he had taught them about salvation and about the kingdom. It, it became clear. They saw it over, over 500 years ago before certain novel and sometimes strange teachings about the kingdom were accepted in the church, Calvin explained 28, verse 28, in just plain and simple terms, which I think match the plain and simple reading of the text. Calvin said, by the coming of the kingdom of God, we are to understand the manifestation of holy glory, which Christ began to make at his resurrection and which he afterwards made more fully by sending the Holy Spirit and by the performance of miracles. For by those beginnings, he gave his people a taste of the newness of the heavenly life when they perceived by certain and undoubted proofs that he was sitting at the right hand of the Father. End quote. Through his death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, and even the growth of the church, the disciples tasted the beginnings and newness of life in the kingdom. Inauguration, not consummation. Inauguration, not consummation. They were alive when the crucified and risen Christ ascended into glory to sit at the right hand of God in power and authority as the reigning Christ. In fact, I find this interesting when Stephen, do you remember that moment when Stephen was being stoned, killed? In Acts 7.59, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As one source rightly notes, Jesus is seen in heaven having received the kingdom authority prophesied of the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13. The disciples were alive to see the Son of Man receive his kingly authority. So the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. The reign and rule of Christ is now, and yet the consummation of his kingdom is yet to come. He will return to fully and finally place all his enemies, including death, under his feet. It's already, but it's not yet. Now here's a benefit for you in that truth. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says... He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let me just tell you, fellow citizens of the kingdom, you are in the kingdom of Christ now. You live beneath the king's benevolent reign and rule now. The king is governing you by his word and spirit now. The king is defending and preserving you in the redemption that he has obtained for you now. So live for your king now. Imitate your king. Seventh, the imitators of Christ. And here's where, here's where I, I hope everything just kind of falls into place for you, where it all comes together, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Christ was calling his disciples to imitate him. Calvin said, the meaning is that none can be reckoned to be the disciples of Christ unless they are true imitators of him and are willing to pursue the same course. Jesus blazed the trail of self-denial, sacrifice, submission, and suffering. And he calls you and me to follow him on that same course. If you desire to fully you know, to really, like, you're really going to follow Jesus. Like, I love him. I want to follow Jesus wherever he lives. Then you must follow Jesus into suffering and death. You must, number one, deny yourself. You must renounce yourself and your self-seeking desires. You must protest your sinful flesh. You must refuse to indulge your carnal desires. You must exercise self-control in all things. And this is, this is not to lead you to stoicism or to be Spartan. We should enjoy God's wonderful gifts to the fullest, but it is a call to put off the old self with its practices, Colossians 3, 9. Number two, take up your cross. You must suffer for Christ. Suffer for Christ. You must die to self every day. Now, we can think of our cross in a myriad of things. I didn't get that parking space at the grocery store. This is my cross to bear. And we can make it all kinds of ridiculous things. But my cross and your cross is crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the cross we're called to. Galatians 5.24. This is a call to suffer for righteousness sake, to suffer for doing good, to suffer the way that Christ suffered. This is not just generic suffering. Atheists suffer. They suffer a lot. You must take up your cross daily for Christ's sake or you cannot follow Jesus. We do this or we're not disciples. Number three, follow Jesus. Follow me is a present imperative, which is interesting. You begin to follow and then you keep on following. You begin, but you stay at it. You persevere. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He was, he was just being plain, just being honest, telling it like it is. Persevering in a life of self-denial, sacrifice, submission, suffering, and perhaps even death for Christ, that's how to truly follow Christ. That's it. Now, many people, they want to follow Jesus on their terms. Christ demands that you follow him on his terms. How do we know, then, that we're actually following Christ? Because a lot of people are self-deceived. How do we know that we're following Christ? Simple question. We find ourselves willing to die to sin. We find ourselves willing to die to self and to honor and to glorify Christ in all of life. That is our desire. Dr. Hendrickson paraphrased Jesus like this. If anyone wishes to be an adherent of mine, he must once and for all say farewell to self, 
decisively accept pain, shame, and persecution for my sake and my cause, and must then follow and keep on following me as my disciple. That's what the Christian life is. That right there. That's what following Jesus truly is. It is the death of you and Christ living in you. It is persevering through pain, through shame, through embarrassment, through persecution because of Christ. He's the cause of your pain. People persecute you because of him. And you persist because you're following him. And if you try to save yourself from all of this, you'll lose your life. You'll perish in your sins, but if you surrender yourself to this self-denial, sacrifice, submission, and suffering, even death itself, oh, dear ones, you will find your life. Now, people talk about finding themselves, and, and they might go on a journey. They might you know, hike deep into the Himalayas or something, because maybe their self is, is there, and they'll, they'll find it in the Himalayas to find themselves. They, they go on this journey, and they end up simply looking inside of themselves for their own value, worth, or, or purpose, or desires, and they end up losing themselves in trying to find themselves. They truly find, to truly find yourself, you must see in yourself who you truly are, a horrendous sinner who deserves the wrath of God. That's who you are. And then you must die and you must lose yourself in order to gain Christ. You have to die to gain Christ. To lose yourself and die to self is to find yourself in Christ. You can't truly find yourself until you die to self and live to Christ. Then you find your life. Now, people... They devote their entire world, uh, entire lives to gaining the world. You know, they, they live for the applause, for recognition, for money and possessions, for sex and pleasure. They live for all that the world has to offer, but they don't find their life. They lose their soul. They lose themselves. They forfeit their souls and die with nothing sufficient to get their soul back. They perish in their pursuit of self. It is those who forfeit the world, forfeit themselves, who actually obtain life. Only those who have forfeited themselves, their lusts, their carnal desires, in order to suffer, die, and raise to life with Christ will find their life. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, and this is why many don't follow Jesus. They don't want the cost and they will perish. This is why, brothers and sisters, we absolutely must follow Jesus. This is why. He is life. He is life. Folks, the Christian life is not method acting. (laughs) But it is a full immersing yourself in the person and work of Christ in order to imitate Christ. It, it, it wasn't healthy for Heath Ledger to lose himself in his role to play the Joker. That's scary places you've got to push yourself to go. But Christ demands that you and that I lose ourselves in him, that we lose our lives for the sake, for his sake and for the gospel's sake. Christ is calling you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, 
and to follow him. So you can live. Live. Truly. Live the abundant life. Now through the keys of the kingdom, gospel preaching and church discipline, the doors of heaven are open so wide to you, dear ones, so wide to you as you follow Jesus there. It's a hard road of self-denial, sacrifice, submission, suffering, and even death, but it is the only road that leads to life. Follow Jesus there with me, would you? Let's travel this hard road together and let's love each other along the way as our king, as our prophet, priest, and king loves us. Let's, let's, let's do this together. Christ blazed the trail. And as we follow him together, let us carry with us a sobering truth, a sobering reality that the other road, the road that we're not on, though appearing more comfortable, though appearing easy, leads to destruction. It is the hard road beyond the narrow gate that leads to life. Let us heed the word of Christ and together follow him home.